Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Kubo and the Two Strings. If you must blink, do it now. Pay careful attention to everything you see. No matter how unusual it may seem. If you look away, even for an instant, then our hero will surely perish. It's time to follow my own path. My name is Kubo. This is my story. Your magic is growing stronger. But when we grow stronger, the world grows more dangerous. Tonight, on a very special episode, we are going to talk about one of my movies of the year, of the decade, of the medium, one of my top ten of all time. With me are three people who usually tend to love animation just as much as I do. My wife, Sharon Shaw. Hello. Joshua Garrity of Kane and Rince. Hello there. And Jerome McIntosh of Game Burst. Good day, sir. To put it lightly, Kubo surprised the hell out of me. I have followed the studio Leica since before they began, tracing the lineage from The Nightmare Before Christmas in 93, through James and the Giant Peach in 96, Corpse Bride in 2005, through to their full formation in 2009 with Coraline, their first actual proper movie. It's a wonderful film, and we'll be covering that someday soon. Leica's Paranorman in 2012 is equally wonderful, and the Disney offering of that same year, Frankenweenie, which shares the Tim Burton heritage and many of the animation staff with uh, Leica. I also caught Box Trolls in 2014, which is an eccentric and very British steampunk romp, and the trailers and marketing for Kubo made me feel like this was going to be good. Good, though. Nothing could have prepared me for the confidence of storytelling, the abundance of charm, the music, the characters, the intricately woven yet starkly simple plot, and most of all, the beauty, the aching beauty of Kubo and the Two Strings. That after this opening tirade, most of you are now regretting not seeing it in theatres, and those who did are regretting not seeing it in IMAX, is entirely understandable. If you've heard our Hero's Journey episode, you will be well at home here. Every single step is there. But far from making this tale feel stale, it actually makes the story seem ageless and as fresh as the best of Marvel. Like a beat Pixar this year for me. They beat Disney and they will almost certainly beat them in the second round with the Moana. They beat the pants off of DreamWorks and Blue Sky and Illumination. They came out as creative geniuses. Their hard work etched into every frame. Yet they did even more dismally at the box office than usual. All four of the official Leica movies have cost $60 million. 
Coraline made 124 million back. Paranorman, 107. So that's a drop. Box Trolls, 109. So it's a smidgen more, but only just. Kubo is sitting currently at $55 million. Now, it's a staggered release. It came out in America several months, uh, well, several weeks earlier and slowly released across the world. But still, $55 million is just under half of the usual underperforming and still $5 million before breaking even. So let's put this in perspective. DreamWorks' Jim Parsons and Rihanna cute alien vehicle home costs $185 million and it made $386 million. And that was a movie I, I compared to basically drinking three giant slushies in a row just incredibly brightly colored incredibly sweet um zero nutrition pixar's brave cost 185 million dollars and they made back 540 million dollars disney's similarly boyish looking adventure big hero 6 cost 165 million and made back 657 million and bear in mind that this was these two titans of animation underperforming this year's Secret Life of Pets from Illumination, Illumination cost $75 million and made back $807 million. Ice Age Dawn of the Dinosaurs from DreamWorks cost $90 million and made $886 million. And Minions, also from Illumination, $74 million and it took $1.1 billion. That's a bit depressing, if I'm being honest. That, oh God, that's more than a bit depressing. That's, oh. Basically, the people who couldn't get into the screenings of Minions and were just sort of standing around going, well, should we go see the next screening of Minions? Just them on their own would have covered Kubo for budget. So what do all those above movies have in common? They all look roughly the same. You could nudge a character from any one of them into any one of the others, and there would be very little dissonance. And that includes Pixar and Disney. There is a homogenization at present happening right now within CGI movies, especially popular ones. There are a couple of other things that they have in common in terms of marketing and approach, but that is of less interest to me than working out why the general public don't like Leica animation on the whole and why their utter lack of appreciation makes these four and any more that they might do with their likely-to-be-brief existence works of such fragile, fleeting rarity, secretive, singular, dearly loved by few. This isn't superiority I'm feeling or disgust at the herd for grazing on sugary yellow minions when the sumptuous banquet of Cuba was right in front of them all the time. It's melancholy and a deep appreciation of something that only a niche group will ever come to know. This film is a poem, a visual haiku told with mischievous glee, childlike earnestness, mature poise of execution and the invisible fingerprints of a hundred artisans. It is an origami heron sat on a bonsai tree of absolute perfect grace and form, but also a heron that can fire paper laser beams from its eyes, ridden by a short-tempered but valiant monkey. One other thing I was going to add to that, uh, the the homogenization of um, animation, uh, is just the studios that have been and gone in between times that I believe Leica will be following. The one I'm thinking of is Image Movies Digital. They managed to produce five films in their short time. This is Robert Zemeckis' animation company. They started with The Polar Express, then Monster House, Beowulf, then Disney bought them, and they did The Christmas Carol and underperformed with that. 
and then they did Mars Needs Moms, which Disney sent out to die, and then they shut the studio down. There's no more studios focusing on performance capture. That art form is now dead in terms of full-length you know, movies for that being the whole thing. As in... Using it as performance capture is still there for an animation style and for uh, live action movies. You've got um, Andy Serkis and Cohen, the, the folks doing the Jungle Books, um, and, and obviously Weta. Performance capture is alive and well, and Naughty Dog, obviously, and a whole bunch of other studios, um, uh, Ninja Theory, do fantastic. Is it Ninja Theory or Team Ninja? It's Ninja Theory. Ninja um, Theory. Do fantastic performance capturing games. But there was going to be performance capture movies, and now there isn't because people wanted something else and there was a lot of screaming animal pictures for them to watch instead and before that Disney let fall by the wayside the tradition of 2D cell animation whether it be computer assisted or not the the idea of a Disney movie as we now recall that they were is gone and they won't come back or if they do it's going to take a Herculean effort on Disney's front to bring back the animators that they lost retrain them in new standards and bring in whole new bunches of animators to relearn how to do 2D animation because people wanted screaming animal pictures and they provided them first with Chicken Little and then with Bolt. While they've managed to sort of go back to their roots with things like Frozen and Tangled, I'm not debating for a second that uh, Zootopia is wonderful. But it looks the same as everything else. And like a dunk, and I think that that might hurt them. And I think that ultimately it may kill them. And that makes everything about Kubo tinged with bittersweetness and makes it more powerful for me. What was your experience of Kubo, guys? And and Sharon, of course, I've I've talked enough. Just um, a a small point on what you were saying about the studios there. I think what bothers me the most about that situation is not it's not so much the fact that the audiences are not going to see these films in droves although that bothers me immensely um, it's the fact that it's the the giants it's the Disney's uh, specifically it is Disney who gets to decide what are the kinds of animation are out there by being the market leader in the way they do you know, they, they've obtained Pixar and now they've made it so that you can't tell the difference between Disney and Pixar. They obtain image movers and they close it down. And it just... What I can see happening, which would I would find very, very disturbing, is that they buy Leica and close it. Yeah. What terrifies me, um, which is linked to, uh, with what you and Sharon are saying, um, Alex, is that these these skill sets are just going to be forgotten mm-hmm. uh, stop motion animation 2d animation just so uh, another animated film which i would actually compare to this that mm-hmm. came out last year was um song of the sea which mm-hmm. was directed yeah. by tom moore which is another like really fantastic visually spectacular film that you should check out if you're listening to this podcast um but yeah just the the lack of support of the these different styles like i i as you say alex like i love pixar's movies when they're you know on their on top of their game and i love some of the stuff that you know disney puts out and all of that 
but I want to see variety. You know, I don't want to have the same meal every evening. I want to have, you know, different experiences, different styles of animation. And I feel like in, in certain mediums, there is that kind of support for different styles. So like in video games, say what you will about the culture at the moment but there's there's this huge support for different um artistic visions like shovel knight got a lot you know made a lot of money and that looks like you know a traditional snes game but then you get stuff like far cry which is more photorealistic that also gets supported so you we do have examples of mediums where different approaches and different crafts and different skill sets are being supported why is it with film that um this is getting you know animation is getting slowly homogenized into this one craft which is cg animation it's really distressing it's not just even cg it's the the same giant wide eyes the same bright colors the same a lot of the colors have to be that bright so that they can offset the 3d no woe betide you if you do something with slightly washed out looking colors to stylistically uh put something like that across parents don't want that kids don't apparently don't want that or at least with animated films there seems to be more than any other medium because it's not a genre but medium Mm. i i i want what i know i mean more so even than superhero movies and it's not even like with superhero movies you could argue exactly the same well don't make everything just marvel this isn't the same like if there was any other superhero movies being made apart from deadpool that were any cop whatsoever (laughs) then I would argue entirely uh, for, for uh, Marvel to just be their thing and to let X-Men do their thing. But they Fox have bungled X-Men so many times and DC keep bungling their universe. There's nothing else left out there. And then they complain about superhero fatigue. No one ever complains about animated animal screaming fatigue. Yeah. But going I to feel- see any animated movie, you have to sit through so many trailers for what appears to be the same film. Uh, you know, with the poppy music and the blah, 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 one-liners, blah, 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 blah. it's you know what? It's not even the films because the films have their own flow to them, and there's always that low point. You know, even in the worst films, even in stuff like Ice Age, there's even the quiet bit with reflection. But the trailers all focus on the chaos so much and deliver you the same thing over and over again they have given you the cookie cutter with the trailers that people only go to see what looks like that cookie cutter you would think people would just go it's all the same and actually actively seek out something that looks different but that's not how people work it's how some people work i feel like one of the most frustrating things for me is that these big studios like disney and illumination like they they spit out these films like well, definitely Illumination. They spit out these films that they know will make money. Mm. Obviously, with Minions and Secret Life with Pets. The problem is, like, you think if you're making that much money, you have the ability to take the risk and, you know, it, open up a studio that can experiment with different forms of animation like Leica. Because 2D animation, like, people seem to forget how how much joy over the years people have gotten from 2D animation just because um, there's been success with the CG animated films, they feel like that's the only way to pull people in. It's like they've forgotten that experimenting and show different aspects of the medium will bring more people in. The the, the problem is, um, Jerome, is that like the, you know traditional two D animation and especially stop motion animation 
it's so time consuming yeah. mm, when compared true. to CG animation. Mm. And when you tell a businessman, um, you know, a, a studio exec, that he's going to be paying the wages of animators for almost, you know, four to five years mm. to make this film done. It just doesn't make financial sense. Yeah. Whereas with an, you know, a CG animated film, they, you know, you can get that out in about a year and a half, two years, possibly. Mm. That just makes a lot more sense, and you just get a lot more bang for your buck. Yeah. And um, it's 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 a, a you know it's a crying shame, but that's the reality of the business. Otherwise, you're paying all the animators to carry on doing something that you know doesn't make money, and to keep training people to do something that doesn't make money. It's like training new Sabutio champions. Yeah, I mean, I I get the impression that as long as Leica keep getting enough money to cover what they invested in the last film, they'd keep going. Yeah. They're in this for the love of it. Oh yeah, but it's not something that I. I can see them being able to sustain forever. You can only and take so many hits. You're absolutely right, Josh. These decisions with the big studios are being made by business people. They're being made by folks who look at a budget sheet that says you can put $75 million into this and you will get $1.1 billion back. Why the hell would they stop? I'm looking at a business and this looks like bad business. <laughs> that only means funny if you've seen not, Bojack they're Horseman. They're not going to take risks because they don't want to. They're not interested in taking risks. They're interested in making money. And it's it, it takes something which has um, uh, the the feeling of true art about it. I don't want to sound like a snob. I don't want to sound elitist. No, this is true art. Don't. Yeah, as well. Quite <laughs> frozen was but not true and art. I, and I do not in any way. <laughs> Uh, want to diminish the efforts of the people who are actually making the Minions movies and who are, are working on um, the mm. technology that, that creates these things. Animation takes effort and it takes time, whatever style you're working in. But the people at the top are constantly looking for ways to make it quicker and cheaper, and that's how we ended up with Chicken Little. Mm. Yeah. And it feels like any of like the a lot of the um, animators who want to try different mediums have uh, different um, forms of animation have moved out of the animated film medium. They've moved into video games and TV shows mm. and um, even music videos because in those mediums they get to experiment more. Yeah. Whereas because it's be- become so homogenized in the animated film industry, they've driven away some key talents. Yeah. And to continue with the food metaphor, if you are a trained talented chef you do not want to go to work flipping burgers for mcdonald's yeah Mm -hmm. what we're talking about here is kind of demonstrated by the the marketing campaign for kubo and the two strings Mm -hmm. because it felt at least some of the trailers i don't know there might have been um, a trailer that i haven't seen that kind of accurately reflected the tone of the movie but it really felt like whoever edited edited together the trailer that i saw was trying to make it look like every other cg film Mm. like trying to find those like little bits of pieces and you know fitting them together to make it look like a comedy you know kind of a comedy animated adventure it is really funny but yeah no i completely get what you mean yeah yeah it's just you know, it's it's got humour, it's got light-hearted moments, but that's it's not trying to be a comedy. Mm. It's not trying to be, you know, a last-per-minute experience. So when you see a trailer that's edited together, 
using basically all of the comedy moments in the film, <laughs> um, it, it does make it look really kind of, you know, mediocre. It didn't look bad, but it kind of looked like, well, okay, that'll be all right, I guess. And it didn't show you what is so magnificent about this film is just the huge beating heart at the center of it. Just this emotional core that I haven't seen in an animated film this year. Um, That's not to say, you know, Inside Out and um, Song of the Sea last year, I would also, you know, I would compare favorably with this film. But um, I think, like, this year hasn't actually been that great a year for animation. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of really, really kind of got what I've been looking for, which is just that big beating heart and the beauty of the visuals that I saw none of in the marketing campaign. There are some shots in this this film that could just be still image paintings. Oh, no, no, no. Not Not just some shots. I was the thinking about this, about Leica. <laughs> like they build everything, and then they, they position everything, and every single frame has to be perfect. There, there's no messing around, there's no filler, there's no sort of, well, this guy needs to go over there. There's never a disco gag, because a disco gag would take them weeks. You know what I mean by a disco <laughs> gag? The disco gag that I've been lamenting for years it happens because you can train the skeletons of 10 guys and girls to basically all perform the same set of rote movements. And you get the disco movements because they're great big and, and flashy and kids love that you know, cultural hallmark. And adults go, ha-ha, disco thing. And you go tick, 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 and you make sure that they all do that. And then you get the, the disco gag. Three minutes. No, it's usually disco gags are, what, 12 seconds, if that. They never commit to them. But well, with it depends if they've licensed out the song, then you go. <laughs> yeah, you get the full shebang. <laughs> Frankly, I wish they would, but no, and no, actually, because then the, the 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 weird kind of Beastie Boys flute loop thing that happens in Shrek Four is the only weak point of the film. Um, to get everyone in this film to do a disco gag, <laughs> it would be crippling on every single animator, and it would have to be really worth it. Ergo, there's not a single wasted moment. And every single shot is perfectly focused and perfectly directed. And it's just that the, the, the scenery in this one outstrips everything that Like has done before. And the characters are just so vibrant and colorful, but, but soulful with these, you know, stylized, but very human energy to them. And it, it, it effectively, you are watching dolls perform for you in close up. These are these are armature dolls uh, with um, uh, silicon skin uh, to 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 give it that, um, that 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 richness and that that sense of that light bounces off the inside of it rather than it just being flat and painted. But every single one of them is about the size of a large action figure. So what you're actually getting here is macro photography set up on incredibly intricate dioramas. It's exquisite and astonishing. And the larger the screen, the more breathtaking it is. This is actually, I'm sad to say, the first Leica I've seen in the cinema. And I pray it's not the last.
They've the the behind the scenes stuff that we've been watching. They refer to them as puppets, don't they? Yeah, mm-hmm. and that that especially considering the the mythical feel of the storytelling in Kubo, it really did feel to me like there is there's a line with this through puppet shows and all the way back to sort of shadow yeah shadow puppetry and, and um, you know using something which is. Um, is, is representative and is, is telling a very, very symbolic story, but is so beautiful in its own right mm. that you you can't not be completely absorbed by it, which, again, makes it so baffling that it's not mm. more popular than it is. Also, the, um, the, the fact that they've like built upon their skill sets over time... Were this to be hugely successful, it would be the beginning of the Leica Renaissance, where, you know, somehow people who were sort of uh, iffy about Leica before, if this made 650 million or 850 million, suddenly Leica would go through 10 years of producing five films of similarly incredible quality. I mean, the, the previous three were all really good, but it feels like that they are building on them on everything they've learned so far and everything that they learned before they were Leica when they were just working with Tim Burton and Henry Selleck. And, uh, you know, just like Corpse Bride was technically farmed out to Leica. But now they're at their peak. And now is the time when the sword of Damocles is hanging over their heads. I don't know. Maybe Universal are just basically going, you know what? We can afford to keep paying these guys. It's prestigious. Look at this. Frankly, they should be courting the Oscar for Best Animated Film hard. I don't even know, actually, if the the, the theatre is the best place for the diversity that we really want to see in animation, and, and particularly for hmm. for this kind of craft. Maybe just, Netflix is actually more it, it like it. That, the like people it, who can actually experimentally go, yeah, we'll yeah. try these guys, home, we'll try these guys. Home viewing, somewhere where it, it can feel more permanent. You know, the idea that you have it in 4K over and over again. 4K, absolutely. Screw 3D. Honestly, it was a it was a dead end side road. Gorgeous. I I mean, you talk about them being you know frames of art. In Coraline, there is a literal frame of art, and I just looked at it and thought, this is possibly the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. And they are carrying it on with everything that they've done with Kubo. It's Hmm. it's amazing. Yeah, I think what bowled me over about the animation in this film was that there are moments where the macro scale is just amazing, but also just on a micro scale, um, like uh, Cameo, um, the older woman who lives in the village, like I feel like she was created just so they could show off how talented they were. (laughs) Did we mention how talented we are? Yeah. Because I was watching her animate on screen, and you know, when I'm watching it, I have, you know, the image of these guys like, you know, manipulating the doll uh, for every, you know, microsecond that she's oh, on yeah. screen, mm. and I'm just like, how are they doing this? This is sorcery, <laughs> um, and it's it's incredible to see, you know, the wrinkles in her face move so smoothly. There's no there's no seams in the animation at all. You know, there's there's not a feeling that they you know swapping out faces or anything like that. It feel it flows in a way that two D or three D animation does, and it's just I it's incredible that that level of detail that they put into just that one character 
character's face bowled me over more than you know even the the you know the giant uh, skeleton that we uh, come across later on and that's a triumph in of itself yeah. No, I'll tell you what it is. The making of documentaries are fakes, actually. They've got a few guys with um, magic... Uh, um, what's the instrument called? Guitars. Shamisens. Magic shamisens. Thank you, um, Jerome. <laughs> making the puppets all dance to their yeah. tune. That's how they, they do uh, it. That is a meta-commentary, actually, on, on what they're doing, because Kubo has his own puppet show. Mm, exactly. So. Uh, by the way, Josh, Song, Song of the Sea, just been bought on Blu-ray. Thank you very much for the tip-off. I trust well you entirely. The director of this uh, is uh, Travis Knight. It's the first time he's actually directed a movie, but he's been producer on the last three Leica films and animator on all four. He's actually the CEO and president of Leica. So this is like John Lasseter doing a Pixar film. Oh, wait. John Lasseter did Cars 2. Okay. So it's way, way better even than John Lasseter doing a Pixar film. As I said, this is a, 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 an example of how they, they've, they've built upon their, um, their expertise that's been acquired over time. Uh, Shannon Tyndall, who worked on the story for this, basically sort of fleshed it out. I was sure that this was based on a Japanese legend. It just felt so authentic to the, uh, to the, to the culture. Um, uh, yeah, Shannon Tyndall worked on the story, originally worked on uh, Foster's Home for... A way with animals, imaginary friends. imaginary friends. That's it, and the Crudes, uh, which again is is superb, um, and uh, the way the actual armature puppets work is um, the tops of their heads. If you look very very closely, never really move. I mean, their their hair will move, but the actual f- of the face. If you imagine to change their expression, they take off the the mouth, the chin, and the cheeks all in one part, and then they replace it with another part so basically you end up with a hundred little like lower faces which they swap out every time they uh speak i think it's like 10 every second which is astonishing and the way the puppets are are created they're like um the sturdiest action figures ever so that they their internal skeleton will hold its position even if it's you know not you know massively perfectly balanced uh it, it will hold firmly what was that? They do the same for the top part of the face, with the eyebrows. Oh, right. So the idea is you can mix and match eyebrows and mouths to okay. create multiples of the uh, the facial expressions. It could just have been the, the fact that Kubo's hair sort of falls down and to the right across his face, super emo style. Um, <laughs> so you don't see his eyebrows move. It just it made me think, you know, that they have to sort of scoop out the face from underneath that ten times every second just so we can be entertained. And... Uh, the it's it's astonishing. So yeah, I would recommend you folks acquire all three of the previous uh, Leica stories on uh, Blu-ray. That the the highest possible definition to be able to appreciate this and watch all the making of materials. This being one of the finest uh, Japanese stories I've ever seen, it make, makes me feel sort of slightly guilty. Just it, you know, I've, I've watched many many animes and they've never really even drawn me in. But I, I feel like it's in the same way that Avatar. The Last Airbender tells a very Asian story in a way that's wholly acceptable to Western audiences. I think it's there is a certain aid in translating which anime doesn't tend to have in the same way. Does that make sense? Like they, they, it is made by Westerners who love this culture for Westerners yeah. who love this culture. 
Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's made with our cultural sensibilities in mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, I I do like a lot of anime, but like the the problem with anime is that. Um, Where do we start? Japanese culture is much more conservative than um, uh, than you know Western culture is generally, and sometimes you stumble across something that's quite not. It is just unpleasant for a, you know most of us over mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas you know something like Avatar and you know Kubo and the Two Strings is taking inspiration from the best of them, mm-hmm. but also kind of injecting them with progressive ideas, mm-hmm. um, like you know like feminism and you know Cora introduced kind of L- LGBT rights mm-hmm. towards the end, and and Kubo's telling a story about a, you know a mother and a father, and both characters are on equal footing in this child's life. Yeah. It's not like the dad's here to save the day and the mum's just going to go off and die somewhere. The mum is taking as much an active part in bringing up her child and keeping her safe as the father is. Yeah, and I I do understand what you're saying. Also, one of the issues that always has raised that things like Avatar and Kubo, they take inspirations from uh, like Eastern uh, folklore. Mm. And you have that problem of because that culture's grown up with it, they're more like children's stories, so it doesn't come up so much in their modern media because to them, like, we've already done loads of stories about that. Why would they still bring it up? Whereas for Western audience, that's still brand new. That's a whole new culture to, like, tell stories through. And so for us, it's interesting and it's a good setting. But for them, often, like, we've done that it's become uh, such a common setting that they try to avoid it. Fairy tales are for kids. Uh, tentacles are for mature adults. <laughs> <laughs> I think as well there's... Um, and, and comparing it to Avatar makes perfect sense to me because I got a very similar feel from mm. both of mm. them. Um, and I think in part that the the approach that the makers of, of both, um, both works have in terms of trying to create a blend mm. of what these the stories are trying to tell there's there's very much an idea of of the uh the the coolness of um eastern myth yeah with um what i think western stories tend to have um quite a lot more emphasis on uh, things like passion and yes. um, and enthusiasm and liveliness and and in fact you could argue that the movies that we've been talking about the the ones with the shouty screamy animals mm. that's part of the problem is that they are so entirely fire for want of a better way of putting it everything's got to be up 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 all the time well, it's a fireworks factory exploding yeah basically mm-hmm. and and there's no um not that there's no heart but but what heart there is tends to get overwhelmed compartmentalized and yeah it's it's here you know that you said about that they have those those calm moments but that's exactly what they are they're segmented off it's not woven in not generally speaking and i'm, I'm you know i'm obviously well aware of the fact that there are um, entirely Western-focused films that, that diverge from this, yeah. but it doesn't tend to be woven through the fabric of what you're watching from beginning to end. 
Yeah, I mean, just to bounce off what you said there, Sharon, like there are calm moments in all of those fil- uh, all of those films, but there aren't calm scenes. Like a a scene that is just quiet for mm. five minutes, ten minutes. Mm. The the scene with Kubo and her mother towards the beginning of this film, where you're the, f- and it's so brilliant because they they never. Um, they never insult your intelligence as an audience member. You immediately figure out that there's something wrong with his mum, that that, that she's suffering from some kind of mental illness. Doesn't need to be the lamp shaded. Yeah, and it's it's just a quiet moment of human interaction and and characterisation. And there are a couple of words exchanged between them, um, or mainly just Kubo talking to her. Mm. But it, it it allows itself to kind of, you know, be still and kind of really soak in those moments of quiet and then go into the more energetic stuff mm-hmm. instead of it being, you know, treating those quiet moments as like, like those other films use quiet moments as punctuation rather than um, a seat, like a, a a part of the, the the main meal, as it were. Mm. I'm mixing my metaphors here, <laughs> um, so I apologise. No, no, we got but that. Yes, you, stick a full you get, stop you, on the ice cream. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's 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 a part of the experience they want to make, and it's not just there to break up the action. Mm. Yeah, and that one of the things that I found so amazing about that that opening segment and the fact that there are so few words and it's the the bulk of it is told entirely visually, I had to keep reminding myself that this was um, was done with stop motion animation mm. because the the actions and the uh, the scenery tells you what's happening. You know, ex- you know, you you know more or less exactly what's going on by um, you know Kubo getting up and everything that he has to do to help his mother, and you see all of that, and those big gestures tell you the story. But it's the it was the little things that told you the subtleties, or told you know told me that when Kubo gathers up the, the papers from the floor and puts them um, away in the little cubby hole in the wall, mm. it's the expression on his face, it's the look in his eye that tells you he's done this so many times. Yeah. Um, and those are the things that you just you don't expect to see in, in most animation, let alone animation of this nature. Um, but when it's well done, it's there. Would you guys... Uh, this is something that Bob Chipman said, and I, I thoroughly agree with it. Would you guys agree as well? This is a Zelda story. Yeah. Hands down. Yeah. yeah. It is the classic hero's journey's tale. Yeah. And and the, the armor is effectively uh, the Triforce in this story. Yeah. Uh, he's a, he, the, Kubo is assembling the ultimate weapon to take down Ganondorf at the end of the, the film. But what's interesting, and, and where this kind of um, diverts from uh, Zelda, is the, the casting aside of the ultimate weapon. Mm. They, he gets it, 
and then he's like, no, actually, this is not how to resolve this situation. This isn't, this isn't the ultimate evil. This isn't Sauron. This isn't some, you know, Mecha Hitler or what have you. Um, it's, it's, it's a, a, a granddad who is deeply confused and possessive and controlling and the way to resolve it is to kind of strip all that hatred and negativity away from him. Uh, the uh, the whole idea of um, casting aside the thing that you uh, the, the reward effectively is you know if you go back to our hero's journey thing that happens repeatedly. The the reward that the hero works for is not actually what he was really questing for. It's the MacGuffin. It's the thing that kept him moving, but it's not really the thing he takes home mm. or she. I've I've seen that in um, in particularly Japanese myth, but obviously other myths as well, where you the thing that the hero is sent off on the quest for, they bring it back to the old wise woman or the old wise man, and they basically chuck it on the fire and go, okay, you don't need that anymore. What you actually needed were the things you learned while you were out looking for it. Um, so let's uh, go to the 12 steps of the hero's journey, actually, because we can go through the film part by part, because each one of these 12 steps is catered for, um, and uh, ask ourselves as we're going, how does Kubo conform to these, and how does the film defy expectation or deliver something more, something that feels new, even if it's ancient? So step one is the uncomfortable, ordinary world, which is uh, Kubo and his mother living in a cave, and Kubo going to perform in the village every day to get the money for a meal there, there was a I think that the most perfect little moment for um, that stillness uh, of, uh, of Kubo and his mother together was when he was feeding her with chopsticks and um, he caught a little piece of rice that had uh, uh, dropped to the left of her lip and put that in there That just that little tiny action told you she can't do that for herself so the smallest child will perfectly understand the situation and be very, very sad. And they'll also understand why, because during the prologue, her name is uh, Sariatu, the mother, cracks her head on the bottom of the sea. But the uncomfortable world is that beginning of a Zelda game where Link's in the village and it's... And, you know, when he's, he's talking to um, the, the old lady at Cameo, um, she's got that kind of, like, Zelda-ish character quality. Specifically, like, when you said the witchcraft of her expressions, it's when she sort of, like, goes, I can't, like, it's a visual thing. Like, holds yeah. her lips really high up and looks, like, super, when she's talking about her looks. And just sort of, like, talking to him about the uh, the, the respect for one for those that have passed and and her her husband's passed on that's kind of what you know one of the subtle quiet threaded through like one of the themes of the film is that the people that we left behind inform upon how the living move forwards and what we can learn from them and how we can proceed in their example i like one the the way they get the way the way they portray like the somber aspect of his life like the fact that during this big exciting scene where he's telling his story but then the he sees the sun setting the bell rings and he has to gather up his his origami and stop the story and like everybody's saying not again like you can tell like this happens every single day he never finishes his stories because yeah. he has to get back home to his mom because that's the only moment when she's herself yeah 
And it, it's such economical writing as well, because not only are we getting a bit of, you know, characterization, just human interaction uh, with Kubo and the villagers, we're getting the backstory of what happened before his mother came to shore. Yep. An exaggerated uh, one, you know, filtered through a child's mm-hmm. imagination, but it's still being portrayed to us. And I love that they're kind of using, you know, this moment to have two things going on at once you're having you know the ordinary world that the hero is experiencing but you're also getting the prologue at the same time mm, yeah not to mention the fact that you're getting the basis of um of one of the the other themes that i got from this which is the idea of of a, a child having to grow up um, and in kubo's case having to at home grow up very quickly um, mm. and and you know, to, to care for his mother in a way that she should be caring for him. But it reminded me of um, the story of the magic paintbrush um, about the, the little boy who has, he, he paints pictures and, and sells them and that's how he, he survives. He's an orphan. Um, but he can never finish any of his pictures because if he does, they'll come to life. Mm. Um, and if the picture comes to life, he can't sell it. And that idea of a, a child being stuck in a, a position where they, they are incredibly creative and incredibly imaginative, but they cannot work that through to a conclusion mm-hmm. because there is something in their everyday ordinary life that's holding them still, that's preventing them from, from taking that step and finishing their story and finishing their picture. Mm-hmm. And that's why the uh, the concluding moments of the film are Kubo being able to finish his story the thing that he's been dying to do if you must blink do it now (gasps) 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 pay careful attention to everything you see and hear no matter how unusual it may seem and please be warned if you fidget if you look away if you forget any part of what I tell you, even for an instant, then our hero will surely perish. Hanzo was a mighty samurai, but he was alone. His family taken from him, his kingdom in ruins, and his army destroyed by the dreaded Moon King. You may recall, Hanzo was roaming the distant farlands in search of a magical suit of armor, the only weapon in the whole world that could protect him from the power of the Moon King. This armor was made up of three pieces. The first... Oh, I know, I know! The Sword Unbreakable! The second... The Breastplate Impenetrable. Impenetrable. Impenetrable! <laughs> <laughs> Finally, the third weapon, the final piece of the armor. I know this one. Pick me. The helmet invulnerable. Before Hanzo could claim the armor and unite the pieces to reveal their true power, he was attacked by the Moon King's beasts.
kill the chicken! Rip it to pieces! That, that's why it's uncomfortable. It's got to be. If, if uh, the uh, lead character, the hero, is fully comfortable in their world, there's no point. They, there's nothing for them to learn. Mm. They're, they're ordinary. They're unexceptional. One really kind of disturbing thing that Bob sort of laid on, on us a few uh, weeks ago was the idea of, um, you know, we've grown up watching stories about exceptional people in ordinary situations. And, you know, they, they always learn something and become, you know, more powerful as a result. And... Um, you know, a lot of the time that they they end up, you know, meeting people that that they are fulfilled by, and you know sometimes they 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 step up to claim their rightful place. There's a lot of lost princes and a lot of people fulfilling the uh, the the work of their fathers, and the way Bob puts it, it's kind of dangerous raising an entire culture to believe that they're all super special, that and they're all super talented, and that you know geeks and nerds. Uh, are the chosen people and that uh, no one else can see it but they're actually super special the idea being that when that's twisted you get narcissism or you get unwarranted sense of entitlement it's that depresses me because those are the best kind of stories the ones that make you feel like there is some hope when everyone else around you is seems dead set on on telling you to conform and and, and just get in line. I I have a theory on that though. Mm-hmm. I I don't think he's wrong, but I think part of the problem is not the idea of um, exceptionalism in and of itself. It's the it's that people are being fed half a story. They're being given a situation where. It's, it's not just that you have to be exceptional and, you know, everybody's going to be the prince and everybody's going to be the hero. It's that you've, you're going to end up being the hero compared to everyone else. And the world is getting bigger and we can see more of it. And trying to deal with the idea of having to be amazing when you're surrounded by seven billion people is crushing. Yeah. But if you look at it in terms of um, you can, as you grow, find things in your world and within yourself that you judge to be exceptional. If people have um, the the kind of upbringing and, um, and guidance that teaches them that it's, it's what they judge to be worthwhile that's important not that they have to prove themselves in the eyes of every single person they ever come across mm. and they have to be the best of everybody um, you know if, if they have that judgment within themselves rather than projecting it outwards and expecting to be validated yeah. by everybody yeah. else when they can't even validate themselves that's where I think the, the damage the best, is yeah. you know, m- most people can't be judged literally can't be judged as exceptional by the world this has led to a whole the whole culture of um judgment television you know w- wandering up on stage and i am gonna sing mm. and then being told you rubbish get out of here mm. which by the way happens to be the subject of the 
newest film from Illumination, the singing pig oh, film, which you know is going to make nearly a billion pounds. Don't remind me. I, <sighs> legitimately, when I saw that um, trailer, I almost walked out the cinema. <laughs> yep. Combining the screaming singing animals, not even singing animals, just the screaming falling over on their faces animals that kids love in their uh, animated family films and the shitty yeah, judgment TV that the adults like. Just mm. It's a perfect synergy and it is going to make bajillions. doesn't matter the quality. You know, a snail singing. How <laughs> ruthlessly absurd. Um, I mean, it, it, might, it might be wonderful. It might, I'm sure. But uh, it, it all ties into the idea that, um, that, that maybe people actually kind of prefer, on the whole, the average person prefers a movie about someone who is kind of just normal and they get sort of roped into something and you know the the Lego movie certainly didn't do too badly and it is Emmett is exceptionally normal in a, in an uh, amazing hero's journey type situation because as we said on the Lego movie show we did Lord and Miller the directors are incredibly good at sneaking out something profound in a packaging that seems run of the mill and broadly appealing what is it about Lyco? Is it is it the, the fact that they look like old animation? Is that it? Because if you look at it, like it reminds me of the Moomins, mm. and the Moomins is so obscure that I can't buy it on DVD. Mm. They released a, a box set of of them, and, and each individual DVD fetches forty pounds or so secondhand, and they won't allow them on YouTube because it's copyright, and they won't allow them to be sold digitally, which would be the only way to distribute them. Otherwise, it's like. The, the Icelandic owners of the Moomins franchise are like, no, don't let them ever see the Moomins. The Moomins is achingly beautiful and haunting I and wish otherworldly. that we were able to get hold of. But Laika seems resplendent of that style of sort of 70s doll animation, you know, the, the puppetry and like, and, and European animation where all they really had was, uh, you know, a, a very basic a camera and, uh, yeah, the work of Oliver Postgate. All of these things that are now lost and gone and that people are not continuing. I, th- I think part of it is also that because there's so many different ways to consume entertainment now, um, I think cinema in general has become this thing where mainstream audiences are kind of c- considering their uh, patro- uh, patronage as kind of a gamble. And they kind of go with the safest bet in terms of like, you know, what entertainment they're going to get out get out of it. Marvel have some, you know, really struck a chord. Um, yeah. They they make great movies, but also they've kind of tapped into uh, something in the mainstream where that they they are actually managing to be the big blockbusters every. Uh, I, I was going to say summer, but most Marvel <laughs> films come out in uh, spring these days. early spring uh, and season, uh, yeah. winter now. But um, I, I do, I do think um, what Sharon was saying earlier. Um, maybe there is a place for this kind of animation 
on subscription services like mm. Netflix because part of the appeal of Netflix is you've already parted with your money. Your money's gone. So why not check out Stranger Things? People are talking about it. I've got a spare hour. Why not just check out Stranger Things? And then that ends up being a internet phenomenon. Mm. And maybe something like that could happen with Leica where, you know, people start talking about Kubo and the Two Strings 2 Electric Boogaloo on Netflix or something <laughs> like that. And um, and sheer word of mouth and the fact that everyone has already got a Netflix subscription means that it does well. I think you, you two have ne- hit the nail on the head. It's the fact that um, it's being drowned. It's it's in the wrong... Uh, people are viewing it the, in the wrong channel. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a wonder... You want to see something like this in a big movie theatre but the problem is the movie theatre isn't supportive of this sort of work this is the sort of thing that you own, you normally only hear about in like the film um, festivals and whatnot in fact it was very successful in the film festivals but when it comes to like big, bo- big blockbuster movie theatres it gets drowned out well it, and part of it is because you know going to the cinema now costs more than a Netflix subscription every yeah. month. Yeah. Like, exactly I can pay I £7 a month roughly, and I have access to... At least six huge, movies. Yeah, at least six movies that are good. <laughs> <laughs> a bunch that are already a on my DVD show. one a night, watch. almost. And a load of um, shite. Yeah, but it, it's still, even with that, you know, me complaining about the catalogue sometimes, it's still a better deal. It, it's just because, lo- especially living in London, some tickets are £13. <laughs> and it's just like, and th- that's not even going to see it in IMAX or 3D. That's just a regular 2D ticket is £13. And if you, if that's you, crazy money. If you expand that out to a family... Um, you know, even a, a parent and three kids, or two parents and two kids, it, or more, fifty, sixty pounds. I, I can forgive them entirely for for going for consistency rather than taking a chance. For going for something that um, that the pedigree and the advertising basically tells them not that this is going to be awesome, but you know what? It's going to be at least as good as the last one you saw. It's going to keep the kids entertained for a couple of hours. You're not going to get that bored, and you know it's it's something to go and see. I think honestly, part of the reason that Marvel are doing so well, it's not so much the quality as it is the consistency as the fact that they Mm -hmm. hit over and over again and it's got to the point now where you pretty much know what you're going to get with a marvel Mm. yeah they've got a house they've got a house style yeah that is is, is appealing now yeah they've they've got a um a, a reputation for hitting their marks every time now i think those films are fantastic i think the quality is there too and that is something that that is very rarely seen so kudos to them for managing to pull that off kudos (laughs) but like i just don't have enough under their belt and without the money to invest in the advertising oh no you could advertise this you could have this on every bus in every city in the world people yeah. are rejecting it. It's not that they weren't aware of Kubo. No, that no, no. wasn't the I problem. There is about something about this animation style that I cannot put my finger on that people are looking at and going, that is not what I want. Not for my family. Also, it looks weird, plus a little bit violent. 
or something like you know paranormal he, he speaks to dead people there's zombies everywhere it's you know it's 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 a perfect Halloween movie for, for parents and their kids. And Coraline's terrifying. Yeah, Coraline's Flat terrifying. Flat out terrifying. Legitimately. And, and, and Box Trolls has all of that type Googling that you would, you know, are supposed to love. But, uh, you know, they, they, they make just as much sense as Minions. But there's just so much more on screen and, and within the heart of, um, of Box Trolls. But... It is being fundamentally rejected. I think it's not even the marketing. Mm-hmm. I, th- there are certain things that you, I just feel cannot hit the mass market. Not in yeah. that same way. And, and I, I do wonder that, like, they, I don't think that Netflix could afford to give them $60 million a time for each movie. That's a lot of scran when they could just go, look, we're going to get another um, Marvel feature for that. And we know people are going to watch that. Mm-hmm. You know, sixty well, million. That's I, that's a that's sixty episodes of the Legend of Korra. Yeah, you know, I I I, I do wonder. The thing is, I I, I look at figures with Netflix, and they're like two hundred percent profitable or something crazy like that. Yeah, and I I I just want to believe that they'll take a risk with stuff like this. Mm. Um, and they, and I think they have demonstrated that they are willing to go, you know, off the beaten path of, uh, a bit. I know, you know, 80s aesthetic is not, um, it, it has been a bit of a trend recently, but I still think Stranger Things was a risk. Like, I, I do think that show was, um, kind of came out of nowhere for a lot of people. Um I don't know, and even even um, I I don't think Voltron did that well in terms of viewership. So mm. I think maybe you're right. If um, it had done that result. well, then we'd already have the funding for a Voltron podcast. That's <laughs> yeah. But uh, folks were not willing to put their money where the Voltron mouth was. Yeah. It's still on yeah. the table, by the way. If yeah, you, know, you guys want twelve it. to fifteen of you want to club together on the Voltron <laughs> yeah. podcast, it it can be yours. Uh, ultimately, if if we adored Voltron the way we adored Kubo, we'd just do one. That simple. Yeah. Um, you know, we really liked Stranger Things a lot, but like, just tr- like it's daunting looking at something that long and that intricate, and then doing a show on it. I mean, like, just Kubo. We're going to go for two, three, not three, but two hours and a bit, um, talking about a, a, a much shorter film than than that. We've but- done an hour. Ready, and we haven't even really started the story yet. Step two, the call to adventure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I will not mention... Um, this is how we do it downtown, folks. Yes. Hosato <laughs> uh, was in there uh, as the uh, impossible not to recognise George Takei. Um, uh, specifically, they got him to, to lampshade it with, oh my, at one point. <laughs> and that was just a warm, fuzzy feeling, which again made it feel like uh, Lost Airbender because Takei uh, turned up in that first season. Kubo himself, we learn so much about him just in those first few minutes that, you know, he is a boy, much like all of us remember being kind and 
at the same time mischievous and uh, he, he wants to go out and visit the world. He's basically your, your ideal hero. He's not too squeaky clean. Uh, he's got enough of an edge to him. And um, ultimately, the him staying out late after dark, he knew. He knew that basically staying out to, to, to deal with the whole lantern thing was a risk. And he just pushed it just that little bit too much and then uh, ended up reaping the... Uh, the whirlwind as a result the call to adventure step two i'm gonna say was most likely just the appearance of the sisters yeah. or was yeah. it simply the whole don't stay out after dark and it's a reversal of the denial of the call he was told not to stay out after d- dark he denied that and thus called himself to adventure well you've got i but- think the actual call is the festival Oh yeah, um, mm. the the lights and the lanterns um, yes. call forth the, um, the ancestors. Yeah. Um, so because they've basically called called forth the impulse to adventure within Kubo. Yeah. Just because just the thought of him being able to speak with his father is that call. Like I want to try this thing because mm. yeah. this because for him his father is like the symbol of adventure and heroes so he wants to meet him i i do think um that alex has a point with the refusal of the call though um i think there is a subversion there because he is presented with the adventure at, by you know by his mother and he she says just don't do this like this thing <laughs> yeah. over here, don't do it and yeah, I do think it's a subversion because he wants it. Like Kubo wants to escape his provincial life. To mm. reference another animated film, um, well, there must like, be more than that. Adventure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, this is this is something that we talked about when we discussed the um, the, the differences that tend to appear between um, a hero's journey with a boy at the centre mm. and the hero's journey with a girl at the centre. And the ones with the girls at the centre do tend to have that feeling of um, you know this particular hero is not being called to adventure quite the reverse she is trapped she is being prevented from leaving she desperately wants to get out there mm. um, she has to do something to overcome that and and I I thought it was uh, a, a very um, significant point that Kubo had that similar setup because he's the the thing with with uh, with Kubo and the idea of him ultimately being the the best of the blend of his mother and father, which is which is what this this really seemed to be about to me. Um, there's a um, a theme of um, the the first family of um, mythological faiths if you like you know the the gods you have the the god and the goddess and the child that springs from them is the one that kind of becomes the world but effectively that child um is it is often kind of genderless when they're very young it doesn't matter whether they're boy girl um moving between the two uh neither something completely different or you know, however that's framed. The point is that they are that combination of um, what they've taken from um, both of their parents, mm. and that again is what gave me this feeling of, of it being about the the blend, the combination that you have this um, this mix of two very different worlds and two very different strengths, and and the amazing start of the story that comes when you combine those elements. Mm. 
the sisters in particular, I didn't recall them uh, as being quite so striking in the uh, the trailers, but I'm watching it right now, and they're there, but uh, they're friggin' terrifying. Mm-hmm. It's because they won the uh, biggest themes in like Japanese folklore or like humanoid spirits who just have these masks that are fixed in a certain like it's normally a smile mm. and it's the problem is it has such it's that weird like not malicious grin but just like unreasonably happy smile yeah that's always stuck to their face and paired with sinister actions and intention it it increases that because the dissonance in, it increases that um maliciousness that comes across from them see what stick them front and center do you know who's popular joker (laughs) well this is this is the thing though that that fixed grin especially when as you say jerome it's it's combined with the dissonance of of malicious actions um that is often one of the most terrifying things to children is people around them who you know smile that fangy grin and tell them everything's okay when it's pretty obvious from their body language and the way they're behaving that everything is not okay um and also they really reminded me of co the face stealer Mm. yeah i was just about to say that 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 there is something to be said about removing eyes from a antagonist uh, antagonistic force Mm. um you just have you know these closed eye shapes on their mask you didn't never you never get to see the sister's eyes and we do as human beings use eyes uh, as a way of reading people and reading their feelings and thoughts and removing them makes you know makes the antagonizing force feel less human feel less warm um you know another great example of this is you know the xenomorph in the alien series like mm-hmm. the re- one of the key reasons why that creature is so terrifying is because it doesn't have eyes and then alien resurrection ruins it by introducing an alien that does have eyes <laughs> And the Terminator as well becomes more terrifying when its human-looking eyes are ripped away to reveal very me- uh, mechanical eyes, that red piercing light that is so non-human. Mm. But I think the key difference um, between like most movies' antagonists and these antagonists, because as the film goes on, you learn what like their whole... Um, like The thing that motivates them in reality is grief grief of losing a sister and because they cannot they cannot come to terms with that they've decided to take a malicious and like destructive way of of getting her back Mm. in a sense yeah not to mention the fact that they're they're mimicking the uh the behavior of their father um, and his possessiveness and, and controlling nature and the fact that he he can't in that form, he can't bear the thought of losing something that he considers to be his. Mm. Um, and it, it kind of, there was very much a, a feeling for me in this about um, how abusive families perpetuate that abuse and, and the idea that there is somebody who believes that in order to be, you know, to exist, they have to control everything around them. They have to control all the members of their family because if they lose that control, they lose something very fundamental about themselves. And then there will be some children in that family who think this is a terrible and wrong thing and I will not repeat this. And then they find their own way to break away from that. And then you have other members of the family who basically 
don't have the uh, they don't have it within them to break away from that and something eventually causes them to think well all I can do here is just duplicate the the abuse and control with which I've been treated and that was was very much how I saw the the behavior of the sisters um, that they were basically just replicating what they they'd seen their father using to control his environment so they're doing the same I love at the beginning with the uh, the giant wave and when um Kubo, as the narrator says, you know, if you must blink, do it now. That whole it's, sequence is excellent. It bookends the whole thing as a story that you're being told so that you settle into your seat and think, okay, right, so this is going to have, like, for a start, it's making a pledge. This has the structure of a story. It's not just going to be chaos. Mm. Yeah, it's opening the curtains. It's Disney opening the book. Mm. It's, you know, all of those things that they put in front of, of particularly animated stories to to outline the fact that you're moving into another world now. It's not Kubo coming barreling out of an exploding bakery with cream everywhere and then it freeze frames and then Kubo, yeah, that's me. Now, how did I get into this particular predicament? Although, to be fair, Ratatouille is awesome. Ratatouille is awesome. <laughs> Because it has a lot more to back it up than that. But uh, there's something about the story structure which so few um, animated films or films at all really actually enter into these days. This is becoming a dying art uh, because it's it's not something people you know massively respond, respond to. I, I don't think on mass. I think it takes a certain type of person with a, to which ancient stories resonate with for that to actually become something of... Okay, and the more the human race survives, and the more it it um, uh, grows and lets this sort of stuff fall by the wayside, it's going to affect fewer and fewer people. Here's a question for you, then, for all of you. Um, just to, to tangent again slightly, um, the the method of imparting this kind of story. Once upon a time, it was sit round a fire and everybody, you mm. know, tells each other stories and, and um, whispers things in the dark to make the outside feel a little bit less terrifying and, and the inside feel a little bit more comforting. Um, and that that incredibly important passing on of of these mythical and symbolic stories from one human to the next has changed format over the generations and over the the millennia. Um, And I would say that to a degree, it's gone through most of the mediums that that we've had. You know, it's gone through comics, it's gone through film, it's gone through music. What is it now? What medium is championing this kind of storytelling now? Dark Souls. Um, <laughs> I, I was going to say certain type of video games uh, use it as uh, um, their punctuation, but ultimately video games tend to be of, of a length wherein there, there has to be so much filler mm. that all the story is is just brief moments where you have respite between the moments of exercising the mechanics. I think with... with uh, commercial type inverted commas video games I think you're right but I do think you're onto something there with the idea that video games are uh, providing a medium that people can tell this kind of story through yeah 
um, the you know the smaller ones where the focus is on the art style, where it is on these um, the very simple stories that are nevertheless incredibly powerful. Mm. But I think you might be right that the what we're bringing into this this kind of storytelling now is the interaction, is yeah. the idea that you can kinetically do something that helps to impart that um, that idea into your head. One of the things that that to a degree, kind of baffles me about the way Lyra learns and the things that she loves to do. She she needs to be doing. Now, that is a little bit weird to me because I'm a reader and that's that's how I absorb things, um, is, is through the written form. Can't you just do um, reading? But... <laughs> <laughs> no, but what I, I tried to get her to read a chapter today. She was really fighting me on yeah. it. Exactly. It, it's the the lack of of um, physical movement involved means that it. it I, I think it feels no. so much less real and engaging. No, because no, no, no. it's it's because she's very very visual and she loves getting absorbed. She will sit transfixed by a big screen watching a story like this. She adored Kubo and the Two Strings. Didn't say a word throughout, aside from when I uh, we, we moved in and whispered to her, I think that's the Moon King. And she turned around and said, well, obviously. I said, why? And she went, he's got a moon on his chest. <laughs> well, she's not wrong. She's pretty um, observant. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I agree. And I think film is... It's is... so disturbing when your eight-year-old is quoting like Archer. Mm. Um, I think film is is probably the um, the the medium that uses the most layers to get stories across because you've you've got the you know you've got dialogue you've got beautiful visuals you've got color you've got movement you've got depth now with um, things that that are visually three D even if you're not wearing the hideous horrible glasses three DS games seriously uh, um, Zelda uh, a link to the uh, uh, a link between worlds. It's a, it's a wonderful little. Um, it's like you're holding a magical box in your hands, and what's going like the this magical sort of game world is taking place, but in a sort of a three D diorama. Like, have you guys played it? Yeah. Oh yeah yeah. 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 Basically, they need to make a giant version of that screen, and then three D will work. Yeah, and everyone has to sit in exactly the same chair. <laughs> <laughs> or they all, all have get on my lap. Slider. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the slider is a masterstroke for me because I love to be able to go. That's enough three D for me. Click. Yeah. I so I, I was half joking with Dark Souls, but honestly, I mean, I think that like that the problem with all of the games trying to imitate it is that they're not imitating what I think that game's legacy is going to be because yeah. I don't think difficulty is that game's legacy. Yeah. I think it is its approach to storytelling and the fact that no enemy is there by accident. There is no demon that's just there to be a demon. That When you read the item descriptions, when you find out about why everything's there, there's this rich rich tapestry of a world and so i think it has like perfect that, structure and no filler yeah like th- that's dark souls legacy for me is that there just is no uh fat that it is just lean and it is entirely everything that's the thing that amazes me about that game is that everything <laughs> loops back into narrative Everything loops back into narrative. Everything is narrative. Even dying, even dying is 
contextualized in the story. Oh, so good. Um, <laughs> you, you like Dark put Souls? Down the game. That's you hollowing. Yeah, Should we do a Dark Souls episode, guys? I'm joking here. I'm mostly joking. I don't think that Dark Souls fans can afford to pay me enough money to get through that game. Dark Souls 1, Dark Souls 2, Dark Souls 3. I've played for several hours for Dark Souls 1 and 2 each just to see if I could. And eventually it just, I kept getting into this loop of dying and frustration. And, uh, you know, I thought, no, it's okay. I'll just leave it. And then when I came back, uh, I was doing even worse. So no matter what I did, I was doing worse. And just wasn't getting that much out of it. The, the, The hours it would take to get through... You can't afford it. You can't afford me. But um, it. But I think that's kind of. Uh, I don't know where I'm going with this. But like you, you were talking about the evolution of this style of storytelling. No, yeah, yeah. That's I see what, what you I mean. Think, yeah. I think that's what video games add to the table is the immersion for a long the narrative. for a long long time. Video games have had this dissonance between um, the story part and, and the gameplay doing. part, yeah. and that like. I love Uncharted 2. Okay, do not get me wrong. But there's the story part of the game, which is over here, and then there's the game part of the game. Which is Drake where mass murdering 10,000 men. Absolutely. Compartmentalizing Who gets steadily, yeah. steadily more armoured. And you do so, kind of wonder, why didn't you just send in the heavies in level one? Yeah, exactly. Mm. Whereas now we're starting to see with indie games and some AAA games now, it's mm. starting to happen where they're actually using gameplay mechanics to tell the story rather than relying on borrowed techniques from film and books. And that's what I think is going to be the evolution of this style of storytelling Mm -hmm. is where games really come into their own, gain some confidence and go, there's stuff that we can do that no other medium can do. Let's actually embrace that shit and and stop this, like, film... Um, worship that we've yeah. been going through like there's a huge and I think it's a problem with the industry and it has produced some great games but um, there's a huge film envy in, in the medium where we feel lesser than film and, it, and there's all these games that are chasing that kind of respect we've already just, established film is on its ass right now <laughs> yeah 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 so so now everyone and, should really be reverential for Netflix yeah, and and you know Netflix and and games are making more money than film is these days. So I don't know why there's still this kind of cultural like feeling of inferiority mm. uh, amongst those in the industry. But anyway, I've this is a massive tangent, uh, tangent, and I apologise. <laughs> no, See, no, no, I no, don't apologise at all. I, I think that going into this and explaining what happens in Cuba would be somewhat redundant. This is an essential film. I'm saying right yeah. now, folks, that you know we shouldn't have to describe what happens or why in Kubo. This is a talk about Kubo. This is not a sort of ah, yeah. oh, you might be able to appreciate it. Like it's not even like it's not massively deep as a story. There's not like layer after layer of subtext. It just tells this hero's journey story incredibly beautifully and cleanly in a way that yeah. makes it f- feel so fresh and bright and tangible, and you you feel immersed in the story in a way that. That, that makes so many other animated films and just films in general feel flat. You're growing stronger. You might not want to look quite so pleased about that. We grow stronger. The world grows more dangerous. 
Life has a funny way of keeping things balanced. Monkey, do you ever say anything encouraging? I encourage you not to die. So the, the the next step on this on this journey after he's met these terrible sisters, the denial of the call. I think it's sort of intertwined with the fact that his seeking the adventure is the denial. It conversely, uh, but it would be when he meets his mother and is sent away um, with uh, the monkey charm and comes to to find the monkey is now transformed into a fully grown monkey who tells him this is serious and he's just not playing ball that that would be the uh, the the other denial of the call when you know she's like you know drink this soup no it's too hot and just the general bickering between him and monkey him failing to not so much recognize but confer upon her the respect of you are my guide mm, yeah that's the denial I think a lot of that as well is that um, he he's behaving much more like a child at this point. And this, this was something that struck me. And this is, this is something that you see in young children who have to be carers for relatives, who have to, um, you know, look after themselves at an age where they may not really be ready to, but the circumstance demands that it's, it's necessary. Yeah. Okay. Once his mother is not there... Kubo gets younger, yeah, and you would think it would go the other way, but that's that's it's almost like with that level of responsibility having been removed from him, mm. he can suddenly be a kid. He can mm. be silly. He can make birds to go and pet monkeys. Backside. And the fact that his carers now are actual carers rather than his charges. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Which is heartbreaking. Yes, it is. We've got to talk about Monkey, uh, who uh, is voiced by Carly Theron, who also voices Kubo's mother, Soraya, too. Um, <sighs> top five, top three best animated voiceover performances, maybe? Yeah. For me, I, I, I don't want to overstate it, but like with what she has, and this is before she played Furiosa, as in they would have recorded this two years ago. Or maybe just after. She brings her A game and then some. I've always liked Carly's Theron. She impressed me immediately with uh, Devil's Advocate, the first film I saw her in. But, She's um, pretty much the best thing in it. In Devil's Advocate? Mm. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'd say she's level pegging with like Al Pacino's awful but brilliantly awful <laughs> in that film. Yes, he's just yip yapping and hem hawing and hoo hawing all over the place. <laughs> he's extremely entertaining, but um, I mean everyone performs fantastically vocally in in this film. But Carly Theron has to handle so much more conflict, so much more secrecy, so much more pain than anyone else and she does so with such she reminds me most of uh josh you'll like this the boss yeah yeah absolutely yeah um and i i i think a lot of her choices recently have been really incredible because i think she's reached a point in her career where she doesn't have to say yes to everything and I haven't really seen um, Charlize Theron in 
anything mediocre recently. She's kind of been, she hasn't been in much, but everything I've seen her in has at least been good. And she's always bringing her A game to everything. Mm. And I, she's become an actress that I really deeply respect. And the fact that, you know, she said yes to this project and, And it's just from her performance, it feels like she treated it like any other role. She didn't turn up to this thinking like this is going to be Minions 2, you know, blah, blah, blah. She went into this like this is like uh, uh, this. Clearly, she read the script and saw the animation and went, this is a beautiful piece of art. I'm going to treat this super seriously because her performance is like a really excellent dramatic performance. It's not, she doesn't actually have that many, you know, opportunities to be funny in this film. Mm. She's just a great dramatic character. Most of the humor actually comes from monkey's sort of glowering face, which of course, none of the work really comes from her. That's the, the, the wonderful animation. Like Kubo will do something to annoy monkey on purpose. And the monkey just, like that you can't even see what i'm doing and that's how much input carly Theron had there although she was actually extremely sweet when she's telling him the story of mr monkey as uh his mother it's um a a moment what's so heartbreaking about that moment and i don't even need to say this because everyone who's seen it knows exactly what i'm talking about is when it lapses when that that moment of joviality just fades from her face and she goes back to how she was before. As a child watching that would know exactly what's going on and how confusing and bewildering and yet how it would be for them. But the way that Kubo reacts with it tells them that he has to deal with this all the time. They really have... The irony is a lot of parents would keep their children away because this looks too violent. This is a movie that expresses to children in a way that so few others really do. It's got so much visual clarity of what's going on and it is frightening and it is threatening and that's kind of important for you know not every story but a lot of important stories have to have that sense of danger to it but what this also has and again i think this is an incredibly important message to get across to children and it's it's really difficult to get across to children because you have to do it in a careful way so as not to overwhelm them but it's it's basically You know, the world is a dangerous place and it is full of trials and it is full of threat. But you know what? You got this. You have your mother's uh, shamisen. You have your father's armor. You got this. It's action. That's why this didn't sell. I watched all three trailers just now while we were talking and there was just action shot after action shot after action shot, firing arrows, jumping through the air, the things going out of place. And that is in the film. Traditionally, historically, animated action films do less well than cute films and princess films and mild peril and running and screaming and jumping and bouncing and things, but not with blades. Mm. The moment that sharp objects come into play... (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Which was the... Disney film in the 90s that suddenly everything was like, oh, what's, what's going on here? Um, Pocahontas had genuine, like, threatening action in it. And, uh, you know, uh, the, the drama was in there too. But suddenly, um, like, by the time Hercules came along, no one wanted to know about Disney doing an action film. Mm. Uh, like, Beowulf. Uh, that is an animated action film that no one could give two stuffs about. Action is reserved 
for PG-13 AAA blockbusters and Never the Twain Shall Meet. Animated films are about animals screaming. Well, you didn't you and say princesses. That, um, that Pixar and um, Big Hero 6, although they did, those are very actiony films and they didn't do as well as those studios usually do. Hmm. But I mean, like, you know, it's not, it's not a, a straightforward art. You can't just, like, make a princess film and suddenly make all the money. Princess Prince and the Frog, Frog underperformed. Mm-hmm. Tangled did well, but underperformed relative to Frozen, which did splendiferously. And we have yet to have a proper princess film after Frozen to see if they can do as well. The next one will be... Because they're terrified it's not going to. Moana is a sort of de facto, uh, like a Polynesian princess, but it's not the same as the tiara-wearing ball-gown-type well, no, princesses. Well, yeah, it's a two-hander thing. But um, if Moana was pitched as an action movie it would very much underperform. Because there's a lot of mums going to see these things with their kids because it's cheaper just to send the mum with the kids than just the mum and the dad. Uh, I would actually say that the reverse is true. Dad, take the kids out to the movies. I have house cleaning to do. I want to put my... That sounds awful. It really, really does. Who's worse? I'm so sorry. Of us, of the two of us. <laughs> okay, right. Do you think dads want to go Let's... see Minions and Angry Birds? <laughs> Let's argue that both of these scenarios are playing out, along with numerous of this. Well, no, because if it was action movies, dad would be like, hey, I'm going to take you to see Beowulf. What are you, like five? Let's go. <laughs> it's a PG-13, you know. I'm, I'm your P and your G. I think we're, we're wildly um, misunderestimating. If dads were taking their kids on their own to see these animated movies, action animated movies would do better. Seriously, think- what dad's going to turn down Zelda when they, <laughs> as opposed to you know? Let, what's what's a uh, an animated stupid game like on on iOS with minions? No, on iOS. I know it's also minions. A, but <laughs> okay, hang on, hang on, wait, wait. A lot of dads are going to turn down hmm, no, because that's not true. I was going to say instead of Pokemon, but like dads like Pokemon too. I don't want to make any broad sweeping statements. But here's the thing. Generalizations must apply. Otherwise, general audiences would go and see everything. I I think there's something... You are tapping into something that I think is true, but I think it's broader than than what you're saying there. Mm -hmm. I think that in the West, particularly, there is a perception that animation is for children. Mm -hmm. And action movies are the... You know the stuff for teenagers and adults, and teenagers don't want to see not, animated movies. And yeah, yeah, it's 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 more to do with this prejudice that animated films should be a certain thing for children, like like nice, clean entertainment for kids. Yeah. And action fun. movie it, action movies aren't clean fun. You know, it's it's you know dirty and and all of that stuff and that's massively appealing to teenagers and 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 you know young adults, you know, but teenagers that's why want Marvel... to see horror films. Mm. And yeah. parents do not want to sit down with their kids by and large and watch something that they're going to have to lean over and cover the kids eyes up if something yeah. that they don't want them to know about yet happens. You've also got to think about the teenagers going to see these films. They're not going to see them on their own. They're not going to see them with their family necessarily. If a teenager goes to see uh, a, an action movie, if it's animated, he's going with, or she's going, with a bunch of friends. And there's yeah. suddenly the, the weird like peer pressure thing of, oh, if I get really into this, will my friends be really into this? Or shall I approach this with a sense of somewhat detached Generation mm-hmm. X Do you know, weariness? oh my god, you are so right. Do you know why I was lukewarm on Disney's when we met 
Why? Because I saw things like The Lion King and Aladdin in the cinema with a group of friends that I couldn't possibly express. I'm this really meant enjoying this me. in front of. Yeah. Um, the, uh, we Hate Movies got a letter from somebody uh, talking about how he was suggesting that uh, he and his teenage friends go and see The Nightmare Before Christmas when it was re-released in 3D. And uh, the loudmouth guy of the group said, no, I'm not going to watch that kid shit. Let's watch this PG-13 movie. And remember, these were like these sort of youngish teenagers. That movie was the game plan because it had The Rock in it. But it's the movie where Rock is a football player and has to look after a little girl. It's not for... Like, it's you avoided an animated classic in in favour of basically something that dads would get grudgingly dragged along to by the little girls. And go, at least The Rock's in this. No, it's not. Because the mums aren't seeing it for The Rock. Come on. Sharon, stop it. Stop making faces at me. You're going, don't make broad generalizations about boys and mums and dads. All I did was shrug. Who are these films marketed at? You take whatever you want. Well, to that, I can only say you make sweeping generalizations more than me. And I know that's, that's a generalisation, but <laughs> no, it's no, no, that is fact. true. I do a lot. Wow! I always bite my tongue afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what you're basically getting with this, guys, is a sort of a live-action um, sit-down marketing session between a bunch of um, industry outsiders who are trying to work out the magic formula of how to friggin' sell this kind of movie and who to. But and we can't where market. The sticking we points know are. we can't market. <sighs> We, we got have no idea it. how this stuff works. But we're puzzling it out, and that's why this should be entertaining. Mm. Should be. Mm. I don't know if it is. Um, the crushing, crossing the threshold. Crossing the threshold. Um, we, mi- we missed out meeting the mentor. Is that monkey or is that beetle? Who is I, that? I, that's, that's definitely that's monkey. monkey. Yeah, yeah. has to be monkey. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Beetle is, um, when they first meet him, he's more on a level with Kubo than, um, than a, a, a guiding principle for him. Well, the defining... Um, uh, perspective of, of the mentor brings is the defining aspect of the mentor is that they introduce a new way of seeing the world to the hero mm-hmm. even if they only plant a seed early on and then that comes to fruition later ultimately if they don't change the hero's perspective they've been a crappy mentor mm, yeah i would say there's also another aspect of um, of the mentor and that is um hanso um, because although he doesn't interact too much, he's their compass. To begin with, he's the only one who knows which way to go. And importantly, he's something that Kubo has had all along. Mm. He's that part of the mentor that's within the hero and only gets really called upon when circumstances get dangerous. Are we calling the sisters the Herald as well? I since think they're so, there yeah. saying, adventurous beginning, Kubo. Mm. I think the, the, lamp, uh, the lanterns are an important part of it, but yeah, the sisters are the Herald. Crossing the threshold, usually marked by the point of no return, would be when the mother um, uh, puts the wings on his back and flies him elsewhere. He can't go back home again. Mm. Yeah. The crossing the threshold is often accompanied by a push over the threshold or mm. something that you, you get forced into or the hero gets forced into. Tests, yeah. allies and enemies, all... I mean, everything in the middle of the film is literally a road of trials. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the the uh, meeting Beetle uh, is the first major ally after Monkey. Um, then there's the skeleton and then the ship and then the, the castle is, is a false trial. It's in there to, with suggesting that there'll be treasure, but there actually isn't the treasure there. All that there is is death, which is 
I mean, for a start, we haven't really talked about Matthew McConaughey either because Carly's Theron is so fantastic. And I will say sidebar, I love Brie Larson. I am really excited to see her doing Captain Marvel. Little bit of me is sad that Carly's Theron won't get the chance because after Furiosa, she had passed the test with flying colours. But uh, Matthew McConaughey, who is also in... um, Sing. Is that him in Sing? It is him in Sing. Yeah, so he's basically in the the best of what animation can be and also Sing um, <laughs> this year. I don't know, it might be good. Um, but I, again, like it's it's the, it's the the state of the 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 trailers rather than the movies because the 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 trailers dictate to people what they actually want. Because there's no art to trailers there, there, some some people who pride themselves some editors who pride themselves on actually making something that does approach art they are the exceptions and it's their adherence to that that makes that something beautiful when you finally when you get a trailer that's like this is amazing I've said this before trailers are about removing the art and focusing on what's marketable and saleable about the film itself and putting it into the edible pieces that people can have spoon-fed to them. The thing I hate the most about trailers now are the pre-trailers. Yeah. You don't get that at the cinema yet because they're expressly designed for the YouTube generation. At the cinema, imagine if you were sitting there in 1993 and just before a trailer comes on for Jurassic Park, it shows you, must go faster, must go faster. These are the exciting bits of the Jurassic Park trailer you're about to see. And then they showed you the trailer for Jurassic Park. What the hell would say audiences of 1993? The trailer for uh, Passengers already looked like a L'Oreal product trailer or some sort of laptop. But the fact that it started with a, you're just about to see two incredibly sexy people hanging on for dear life as a spaceship they know goes careering towards the sun. And then it there goes, boom, Passengers. And then it starts. And it's like, you're on the spaceship. And you're like, right, okay, so get to the sun already. That's... There's nothing like there's nothing left now, and then it goes through the sort of the slow build up and establishing the characters, and then it throws a spanner in the works, and then the uh, montage happens at the end where they're going, I love boom, and then it says passengers, but because you've already seen that climax, I'm not going to tell you the metaphor I had because children are present, but imagine Amsterdam and pre-build climaxes. It's like being shown a photograph of yourself and going, oh, it's going to be like that, is it? (sighs) If if anyone wants to see the inverse of what Alex is talking about, a trailer that actually manages to get more art out of the film than the film actually has, um, I really recommend watching the second trailer for Man of Steel because I think the second trailer for Man of Steel does a better job of conveying the feel of Superman than the actual film for Man of Steel does. <laughs> Do you mean the one um, where they're always behind you, they will stumble, they will fall, starting to well up, yeah, just thinking about yeah. that wonderful trailer? Yeah, it, I mean, it's Hans Zimmer is kind of playing a big part in why that, that trailer works, because oh, yeah. whatever you want to say about Man of Steel... Hans Zimmer's theme for Man of Steel is really good and it deserved to be in a better film. And 
Yeah, the trailer for Man of that that second trailer is the reason why everyone was so excited for Man of Steel before it came out. Mm-hmm. Like the, everyone was watching that, going, "Oh my God, there's actually going to be a good Superman film." And then Man of Steel came out. Um, if you want to yeah. see what kind of a, a really good Superman they, film they could have done and could still do, uh, check out my on YouTube uh, pitch for uh, how DC could fix their broken ass universe with just one Superman film. Uh, it's on YouTube. Go check it out. I think I'll include it as a, an extra uh, the next time we do one of the DC movies, which I think next year will be Wonder Woman. Yeah, we can hope. No, I mean yeah, we we can, we can hope. I, I, I didn't say it's well placed, but we could still do it. We can also make mathematical calculations regarding the uh, heavy, heavy influence of Zack Snyder upon the production and everything that has happened as a result of Zack Snyder. Anyway, Kubo. Uh, Matthew McConaughey. Uh, <laughs> you know, I feel so bad for Matthew McConaughey. I, for some reason, deep in my bones, I feel like I don't like him. Yet every time I see him in anything, I'm like, he's just actually lovely. really good. Yeah. Like for yeah. some reason, so I don't know where this comes from. It's because Wooderson is a jerk. I was just going to say, I think really I'm just really pissed off. Sorry. I think really I'm just incredibly cross with Wooderson. I think for me it's just always, oh, yeah, that guy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, um, so anyone who doesn't know kind of what's happened with McConaughey's life uh, recently, mm-hmm. um, he did a lot of really, really bad uh, romantic comedies in the early 2000s. A lot of Kate and Hudson. He, yeah. And <laughs> a lot of uh, mo- he, posters where he was standing back to back with a woman and she was holding his tie to show who's wearing the pants. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and basically, at some point, Matthew McConaughey got really depressed with the state of his career. Understand. And kind of disappeared from Hollywood for quite a long time, actually. I think it was like three years or something like that. And then he came back with the attitude of, like, I'm going to say no to a lot of stuff because I can, I can, I can get the work because I've shown that I can be in all these movies. Um, but, at, yeah, at some point he was just like, I'm going to say no to a lot of stuff and be really picky about what I choose to be a part of. So I'm Matthew goddamn McConaughey. I should be yeah. getting the good roles. All right, all right. But, <laughs> but what's what's happened for me is that Matthew McConaughey, may, he may not be a sign of quality, but he's a sign that at least what you're signing up for will be interesting. Yeah. Like I know, I know, Interstellar is a divisive movie. I fall on the more positive end of the spectrum, but like that movie's not. You know, it's not boring. Like, it's a really interesting film to dissect and discuss. Um, and, you know, True Detective is really interesting. And this mm. is, uh, you know, fantastic. So, like, I, I, Matthew McConaughey for me has become, you know, an actor I, I really, I was really apathetic towards for a really long time. And now he's, he's become one of the more interesting people working in uh, Hollywood because he, because of his new rule of saying no to a lot of stuff. Like he, he, he deliberately picks really interesting films to be a part of and projects to be a part of these yeah. days. I, I really want to take another pass at Interstellar actually because, um, movies are Mikey. I wasn't. I was I was blown away by certain elements of it the first time I saw it, but not the film as a whole. Um, but yeah, now we've seen um, movie with movies with Mikey's take on it, um, and he's 
he's flipped me on World's End. Yeah, me too. Yeah, went so from being uh, be interesting to see what we huge can get disappointment out of to being a sort of a, whoa and. Yeah, I, 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 honestly, movies with Mike. I, I would love to get uh, uh, Mike on to, uh, to to the podcast as a guest. So you guys should assail him with. No, don't no! badger him. No, 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 no. Don't, <laughs> For God's sake, don't assail him. But mention <laughs> School of Movies in your timeline whenever you say, "Hey, that was a great thing." School of Movies did a thing on that, or something that you should guys should see. But just send him in our direction. He's already retweeted a couple of things that I, I've said. I've got nothing but praise for his show. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it seems like he'd, he'd dig our stuff. So uh, yeah, but uh, but yeah, and, and, uh, I, Matthew McConaughey has—I uh, I, I definitely admire and respect him for being able to to be able to say no and, and to actually reevaluate his whole career. I think Owen Wilson probably would have done like because he had a severe breakdown a few years ago and almost committed suicide. Like ultimately, I think Matthew McConaughey should do like motivational talks to his fellow actors. Mm. Uh, to yeah. say, you know, once you've done the uh, the picture with Larry the Cable Guy, um, you know, there, there may seem to be no no escape, but you can, you know, there there, there is control that you can take of your life. And, mm. and Nick Cage would go, yeah, I'm going to take control today. I'm going to fire my stupid agent. <laughs> there is a <laughs> lot of stress knocking around Hollywood. It, oh, there's yeah. a, a lot of people that get into that industry um, who, you know, there's there's a certain quality of character that draws you to to performing anyway um, and then you take that and put it in an environment I mean it's what we were talking about with Bojack Horseman you put it in an environment where everything is is fake and you can never be completely certain who you can trust and you're just going to multiply those issues um, I've been listening to a podcast called the mental illness happy hour um, and the most recent episode but one um, is a, an absolutely fascinating interview with um, Mara Wilson um, mm. And she, I, I strongly recommend anybody who's got any interest in um, in issues of mental health. This podcast is it's it's a strong flavour, but it is very very good. And the episode with Mara Wilson, particularly, um, I've been incredibly impressed with how um, how open and honest she's she's been about the you know the things that she's been through. Um, just a little aside there, but um, but yeah, that that Hollywood environment is. It's gonna. If you've got any insecurities or instabilities, it's gonna draw it out of you, and I can't see that being an easy thing to come back from for anybody. Hmm. Beetle as a character, I think, should have been the selling point of this film. Not because he's my favourite thing, but I think he's probably the most accessible thing about this. People like what they know, and they like the funny guy. And uh, ultimately, Olaf was a huge selling point for um, Frozen. The helper who is oblivious uh, is it right there? I mean, the fa- if, if he'd been more cute and he looks rather like than a tick, yeah, he looks like he he you know looks. I, I love his design, but if he, they'd made him look more accessible and really focused on him in the trailers and you know like done done a lot more of those, like maybe even re-edited it to make it seem like it's got that kind of trite humor where da 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 silence da 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 da. So more emphasis on Beetle might have sold it a little bit better. Yeah, um, right, less on action because, as we already know, I think action in animation, uh, like straight up dangerous with blades, action is poison. <laughs> One thing I thought was absolutely fascinating about Monkey and Beetle actually was um, the fact that they are 
they are symbolising not the things that you would typically expect a monkey and a beetle to symbolise um, in a, a, a Western aesthetic movie, which is, you know, monkeys, silly, mischievous, mischief, chaos, um, beetles, insects, ew, um, you know, something that's a little bit creepy and a little bit, you know, not right with the mm. world. In Asian in- culture, Japanese um, specifically, the monkey is mischievous, but on the other hand, very wise. Exactly. Now, that's what I was going to say. Monkey is wise. Beetle is strong. Yeah. And if you think of it in terms of, of beetles having this armoured carapace that protects them, they have these incredibly soft, mushy bodies that couldn't stand up to the world if they didn't have that armour on the top. And that they can, um, like, you know, like ants can, they can push many, many times their own um, their own weight and and, um, and move things around. And I think that that kind of, like I said about the idea of the blend of the the qualities of the mother and the father. This is what Kubo is trying to develop: wisdom and strength. And and in the forms that they're in, um, I would say Beetle is kind of the in between step of the little charm monkey mm. and the real monkey as it were because he's still a um a fragment of his full self at this stage mm. there's there's something missing from beetle um and they they represent that with him not being able to remember um, much of his past The inmost cave in the belly of the well, this is always the bit that slightly throws me because it can be translated too literally as when the person is at their lowest point or when the person is stuck deep down in something very literal. Um, so, for example, when, when Kubo is in the, uh, the bottom of the sea and there's those enormous eyes around him and he's starting to drift and he's starting to discover new truths as a result of that, that could probably be the belly of the well, but it's not necessarily the inmost cave. I tend to interpret the innermost cave, probably erroneously, as the death and rebirth side of things, uh, which actually tends to usually come later. But I think in this case, the innermost cave is probably the castle where he goes to find the helmet and actually only Mm. um, loses his uh, guardians. I think you might be right there. I mean, apart from the fact that at the beginning of his his journey, they have a literal belly of the whale. Mm. Um, But Hmm. um, but I think the idea with the innermost cave, um, if I remember rightly, is that it's somewhere where you make a choice, that you get to somewhere where um, you could lay down your arms now and sleep and rest and not go any further with your journey. You can stay here. It's relatively safe. It's not home, but it's relatively safe. And here is the place where if you want to, you can stop. It ties in with the goddess, the meeting with the goddess. Right. So would that actually be when he's just crossing the land with monkey and beetle and it's after the ship and... He's just established what with the little glances and the whole... He's so thrilled with being able to eat a meal between two people. He's found himself a family and he doesn't want that to end. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Does yeah, that make sense to you guys? Yeah, because if you remember, um, Monkey's main purpose is to keep him safe. Like, her, her main thoughts are once he's got the sword, the armour and the helmet, they'll just continue to travel, keeping out of the reach of the Moon King. Yeah. Like and Kubo, because uh, they like that could just be their life moving forward. Just he'd finally have like a whole family for him. Yeah. But um, that's like that. That would be the representation of here's the thing that you've always wanted, and here's where you could settle down to a 
not let's not say safe life, but a form of comfort. Yeah. So the ordeal would be the loss of that. Mm. The, well, it's, it ties in with the realization that you you actually can't stop. Your journey is not complete. Mm. Um, and and in this case, the because I think I mean I don't know how quickly it's it's pretty obvious early on who Monkey really is. Um, I don't know how quickly everybody worked out who Beetle really is. Mm. Um, but the fact that um, you know he is sitting in between them eating a meal, um, but they're not whole. They're not the complete versions of his parents that are what he truly wants their shades but exactly their shades and he's already grown past that um mm. and that's that's part of what the whole hero's journey is about it's about the process of growing up um and it's a, and this this point in the story is about you know going through that phase of thinking oh god i wish i could go back to a time when i didn't know about all this hardship when i didn't have to you know do work to to sustain myself and take care of myself but you can't just stop it 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 is something there is something that will urge you forwards um and um and yeah i think the the ordeal kind of starts with the well starts it falls in the middle really um but the um the sisters coming back and um and while kubo is down in the lake um attacking monkey yeah um the reward would be the uh, finding the uh, the sword and the armor, and then uh, they subvert it in terms of the fact that he gets the reward when he takes the road back because the reward was there all along. The idea being that that you know it was there all along, but the point is that was still not the thing he was supposed to be looking for. It that kind of reminds me of a oh, Terry Jones book, Nicobobinus, where um, the uh, magic plant that he was looking for to. Uh, cure him of his golden foot uh, was on his own front doorstep all along um, Terry Jones uh, has been diagnosed with dementia and won't be doing interviews anymore and 2016 claims another uh, he's not dead but it's just yet more hardship for 2016 thank you for that one but we'll be covering Terry Jones's uh, little film called Labyrinth you may have heard of it with uh, another of 2016's um, greats gone uh, David Bowie. We'll be covering that before the end of the year. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, the ordeal, losing his uh, his parents again, and the reward, uh, the armor, and, and and everything which he thinks he needs to uh, defeat the Moon King, which he's now decided is his job because no one else is going to do it, and he can't run anymore. <clears throat> Ray finds as the Moon King. Absolutely perfect casting because it is cinematic shorthand. You know when he starts... Uh, he starts off, like, um, genial. But then when he starts becoming angry with Kubo that he won't see things his way um, and starts ranting about the, the, the weakness of humanity and the frailty of mortality, it's Voldemort by any other name. Uh, and it's... Um, presenting you with the opportunity for if Harry had been able to commiserate with Voldemort, something I've always wondered about um, and the idea of you know, rather than this being some someone so pitiful that they simply had to no longer exist what else could possibly be done about that? And it turns into a great big um, uh, ac- action sequence which is very threatening and frightening the end of it, uh, you know, just the the, the 
the meeting of Rafe finds bellowing with rage with what Kubo decides to do is masterful for me. It's it's the thing that really sealed the deal on the movie. See, what what I loved was the introduction, the, the as you said, the way like it showed him when Kubo was at a low moment, his grandfather appeared to him and like in in his eyes he was trying to like this is his grandson he wants his grandson back this is family and he like he he shows that side that um perhaps like his daughters have sinned for a long time when he like when they stay in line like this is the genial like grandfatherly like what seemingly wise person who just wants to give you a bit of wisdom and astray yeah, yeah benevolent this but, is how he sees himself and then when he f- first appears to him in the in the village he's like very calm very oh you're, you're just being silly like Second this isn't what you want in the dream first yeah yeah but then when Kubo outright defies him you see like you see his true his true face like he's he's a hurt old man who just wants things to stay the way they are this actually relates back to Bojack again and you guys won't have seen this but something that Diane says about um uh, the twisted view of oneself that we have deep down. You know, we think, you know, that people think I'm an asshole, but that's not who I am really deep down. Mm-hmm. Diane counters that with, well, you are really your actions. You have to be defined by that. You can see yourself as this uh, benevolent uh, moon god, but ultimately, if you're a tyrant and you behave like that, that's how people are going to remember you. That's their perception of you. But as the ending of Kubo and the Two Strings shows, being tied to one's actions is something that can be broken. I saw somebody challenge Josh on Twitter regarding the ending here, and it is absolutely worth discussing because it may have troubling implications for some. The Moon King at his moment of triumph, the peak of destructive control is granted, one eye returned to him by the grandson he stole an eye from. Effectively, Kubo makes this theft a gift. So he's all set to destroy Kubo, and Kubo plays his guitar using the uh, the two strings of his parents and the one string of himself. It's uh, He has finally, effectively found all that he really needs to be. So now suddenly, granted new perspective, all the bitterness and desperation is drained from the king along with his memories, and he's left a mortal and feeble old man, the very person he would have despised from his cold, lofty domain in the sky. But he does not have the anxiety left in him to realise this about himself, because he's forgotten. He is an empty vessel, absent-mindedly asking his grandson for guidance, presenting untold potential with his actions. It's up to those around him to give him the support and love he either spurned in the past or was unfortunate enough to have been denied. The townspeople step in and tell him that he is the kindest of them all. They spin tales of his deeds, sweet white lies about his generosity and overwhelming worth. The person who took issue with this on Twitter labelled their actions as gaslighting, an old practice given recent cultural purchase with sci-fi connotations. It means to paper over somebody's world and implant a false reality. This is a catch-all term that can be applied exceptionally negatively to the practice of, say, 
staring at the impartially collated statistics of lowering crime and maintaining, somehow, that the streets still feel more dangerous than ever, despite all evidence to the contrary. That's gaslighting, Newt Gingrich. And it reinforces the justifiable fears of Americans to suit your own needs at the exact point when those fears can be allayed. It makes the rational irrational. Going to see your grandmother who now has dementia and knowing that you just got fired last week and that when you told her last week when you visited she was horrified. You look her in the eye and when she asks you how your job's going, you smile, you stroke her hand and you tell her it's going great. You are willfully lying to a trusting and kind person to maintain their happiness because the alternative would be for the villagers to drive this sweet old man away with stories of the terrible crimes he now no longer remembers, cursing him with a need for their own vengeance rather than mercy. Yes, there potentially exists a happy balance, a happy-ish medium between the beautiful lie and the appalling truth. But this is a second chance, a clean slate, to unconsciously make amends for grave misdeeds from people willing to literally forgive and forget. But remember when Kubo made his final decision between love and protection through his guitar and enraged retribution through his hard-won golden magic katana? He picked the guitar. To miss that is to willfully allow the true message of Kubo to pass you by. Sometimes... Stories can be more real than the past. word I have on Kuba. You, you guys feel free to chip in. <laughs> it's kind of hard to follow that. For me, it um, was it was just such a perfect ending, and uh, when I realised what they were doing with it, I've seen so many heartless people, heartless men, vanquished. Um, that, you know, this kind of ending, you know, at the end of the Lego movie, when Emmett reaches out to uh, President Business, this is now my kind of ending, my kind of defeat. The idea of a second chance to someone who has convinced themselves that there's no going back. Cora um, ends this way as well um, with uh, Kavira. Mm. Um, it's becoming um, quite a bit, uh, it's quite a trend, a positive trend um, of kind of humanizing the villain mm. at the end of the story. It's like, look, you know, th- we might have, you know, hated this character for most of the journey, but at the end of the day, they're a human being and human beings change and their attitudes change and do you still believe some of the opinions that you had 10 years ago you know it's possible for people to change their minds and and you know be you know be more progressive and and be better people as they as they go forward so kind of respecting that 
you know, ability for people to change is a nice trend to see in uh, cinema and TV. Mm. And recognising motivation for what can be perceived as terrible, terrible actions as well. Because if you if you try to look at some of the most awful behaviour that, inverted commas, villains come out with, it's very easy to paint that all as black and white. They do this because they're bad. We don't do this because we're good. And they must be destroyed. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. ultimately, everybody's uh, motivation comes from the same combination of things you know the 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 impulse to survive the desire to be loved and cared for the um the 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 needs that we all have are remarkably similar it just it comes out in some people in different ways because of a a different balance of of emphasis of this need is more important than that need and your need is more important than that other person's need and and it just it it comes down to if you want to look at it in in mythological terms it comes down to what stories we've been told and what stories we believe yeah and then the extension of that is what stories we want to tell yeah I feel like I've shortchanged Harry Potter in terms of he's not wreaking vengeance upon uh, Voldemort at all. He gives him every chance to give up. He he shows him mercy repeatedly in that final battle. And then the final blow that he strikes is just a disarming. He is as pacifistic as you can possibly get. He never strikes in... You know, in a need to kill him. I feel like this is going to become the cultural story, and that will maybe get added on to the uh, the hero's journey just uh, over time. That mm. the the idea of um, recognizing the shadow in oneself and not trying to eliminate it, but to live with it. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, the the beginning of the end of Harry Potter, the beginning of the defeat of Voldemort, is actually not in film eight at all. The beginning of Harry being able to defeat him is, I feel sorry for you. Yeah. In addition to that, I I would say that um, there are people in this world who are... I, I don't think it's possible to negotiate with. So I don't, like... I'm glad this trend has emerged, but I think it is unrealistic for the trend to completely replace... Because... Hitler existed, you know. I knew so, you were thinking like, that. <laughs> yeah, I, I know he's the guy that everyone props up. But look, like there are people here, you know, there are people who existed who are beyond beyond that point of return. And and Voldemort, I think, fits into that. Yeah, you, he, Harry Potter gives him every opportunity to turn back, but well, he's the way, beyond the point of return. The way Joe described it was that uh, he would have to feel uh, empathy and remorse for what he had done, and Voldemort uh, was physically incapable of that. Yeah. And and the brilliance of, uh, of Kubo and the Two Strings is that the motivation for the antagonizing force is so personal. Like, this is not a adventure to save the world or save a huge group of people. It, in in many ways it's just a conflict within a family it's yeah. it's a family mm-hmm. drama and because of that i think the conclusion is very fitting it's kind of coming to terms with the abusive um you know parent or grandparent and and you know not not giving them a free pass essentially but like i don't know what i'm trying to say here but like you can't see those people as villains like 
they're an important part of your life whether you like them or not and at a certain point you have to you know have a reckoning with them and maybe you come to learn something about them that you you know makes you see them in a different light and it may not be you may not be able to forgive everything they did but it may may you know give you the ability to respect them and you know let them live their life as they want to live it and i think ultimately that's what kubo does because i don't think kubo really wants to have anything to do with his granddad after that point it's just right you've got your second chance and now i'm gonna go live my life I don't think it's necessarily going to be something that uh, that becomes ubiquitous, and at the end of every scenario, it's uh, yeah. um, it happens. But it's effectively it is a more modern day, more thought provoking, more heartfelt version of the hero has a chance to kill the bad guy at the end, and then decides not to because he's the hero, and the bad guy's defenseless. So then the bad guy reaches for a concealed weapon, and the hero shoots him in the head because it's like, ah, I gave you the, your chance, and now you're dead. Like uh, I think this is um, something that's that's going to replace that as a uh, yeah. you know something that's recurring, and you know, God knows in uh, you know because it's it's progression technically in thirty forty years time that scenario could come in halfway through the story and the antagonist could end up helping the hero for a hell of a lot of the rest of the story as as a um, thing that happens repeatedly. Slightly off topic, but it's kind of connected. I have a theory about uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 2 and I have no basis for this theory other than Go for it. I have a feeling that um, Nebula, Nebula ne- is going to actually end up joining the Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, I think she's right. actually going to be a team member. And I think that would be such a good story decision. But yeah. we'll see. I'd love to see that. I'd also love to see Loki have his own film. <laughs> <laughs> I also suspect that uh, uh, it, it's possible that that could happen with Kylo at some point. It may even go in a complete reversal wherein uh, um, uh, Kylo ends up uh, working for the Resistance and uh, Rey starts becoming uh, succumbing to the dark side. It, uh, they may pass like ships in the night. But, uh, yeah, Kylo Ren's not all bad, that we already know. Yeah. Can't wait to see what happens there. So, yeah, that's let's let's finish this now. Two and yeah. a quarter hours is enough for Kubo. Uh, absolutely magnificent film. And um, yeah. the, the golden herons at the end, just, I mean, sp- splendid. Perfectly set up earlier. Laying down a sense of heritage, uh, which adds a metatextuality to this this film, carrying on the the storytelling and the studio carrying on the, uh, the the animation techniques, so that people can still keep them alive. And for I, I will be watching them. I will be at every single film from now on, just in case, and encouraging everybody to go see uh, these guys. If you live in an area where Kubo is still on at the cinema... And you've heard all of this... Go and see it. Oh, you've already decided to go and see it, yeah. so well done you. Go and see it. Go and see it again. Go and see it again. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Um, and uh, the ones to uh, get hold of again are Coraline, Paranorman and Box Trolls. Some lovely, uh, lovely animated films there. And we'll almost certainly be covering at least one of them pretty soon. Mm. Definitely Cor- Coraline. I would really, really like to do a, a proper in-depth analysis of that. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, where can folks find you? Uh, Jerome, first. You can find me over at Game Burst. Uh, we do a twice-weekly show. 
Uh, on Sunday, it's the news, um, no matter how slow it is. And on Thursday, we have a, a round table or replay or a um, played uh, where we either discuss a recent game that's come out, a uh, not-so-recent game that came out, or um, discuss a topic that's of interest to us. And Josh... Uh, yeah, you can find me on the Cane and Rinse podcast. If you head over to caneandrinse.com, um, you'll find a podcast where we take a game or a series of games and dissect and uh, analyze them in detail. Um, if you're listening to this podcast, you will be interested in our Legend of Zelda series yes, you will. that we're covering at the, mo- uh, at the moment. The most recent uh, entry in that was the Minish Cap. Um, so we've done Ocarina of Time already. So yeah. go back and listen to your favourite Zelda game, um, uh, most people's favourite Zelda game. Um, you know, we've done the, uh, Link to the Past. We've done, you know, we've done all the original NES games. Go, go, what? Listen to those because if you love Kubo, you'll definitely love listening to the uh, Legend of Zelda series. Thank you very much, both of you guys. It's been absolutely wonderful talking to you. I knew that like, the moment I actually came back from the cinema, I was like, I cannot wait to talk about this with these guys. I don't even know. I, I hadn't really like got you guys to agree to be on it, but I was like, I've got a feeling. <laughs> <laughs> I was glad to be on the money at this point. Okay, so. We will end on While My Guitar Gently Weeps, sung by Regina Spector, originally composed and sung by the great George Harrison. And getting a Beatles song for this movie makes it even more special. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out.
Yeah. 